You may not be familiar with her name, but you will certainly know her films. For Elizabeth Carlson has produced a whole host of cinematic gems, including The Crying Game, Little Voice, Made in Dagenham, Great Expectations and Caro. And having spoken to her husband, Stephen Woolley, on this show previously, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome her to Soundtracking, the podcast about screen music with me, Edith Bowman. Elizabeth's latest project is Colette, starring Keira Knightley and Dominic West. Colette tells the true story of a French woman whose husband exploits her creative talents by persuading her to write under his name. The success of the ensuing series of novels brings them both considerable fame, though she soon becomes frustrated that she can't take the credit she so deserves. Now, Colette is scored by Thomas Addis, and it is with his title track from the movie that we begin. We should add, there is a fair bit of choice language in this episode, not least from the mouth of Sir Michael Caine. Elizabeth, thank you so much for, for doing Soundtrack and we're keeping it in the family because your partner, both in, in work and life, has already been on, who was a joy, Stephen Woolley, to have on. In fact, I mean, I think we could probably do an episode with him every month, to be honest. Yeah, he's a, no, it's a total pleasure for me to be on it, Edith. I'm such a fan of yours and I've been listening to the podcast for a while and yeah, I have to say, Stephen is a great raconteur. He's got some fantastic stories and he's just such a cineast and <laughs> musicologist and he just seems to communicate with such um, passion mm. and uh, intellect and verve. Well, we try and, you know, we're trying to get as many women on as well as possible, which is not always easy, I have to say. Um, so to get someone, you know, who's worked so brilliantly and given us so many great films over the years uh, as a producer is just a real pleasure. So thank you so much. Can I go back to the start, though, and ask how you became a producer? My mum's English and my dad was Norwegian, but I was born 
in New York and brought up there to my, till I was about 12. And film, cinema was very much a part of the fabric of the culture. My mum was a psychiatric social worker and so she used to get home from her job in the um, school system at about four and she would watch the late afternoon movie show lying <laughs> on the sofa before it was, you know, dinner time for four kids. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> I would sometimes, if I'd done my homework, I'd hover over her shoulder and, and watch movies that she was watching. And we had a guy called Herbie. He used to drive up from New York City in his um, Volkswagen Bug. And the challenge was to see how many kids in the neighborhood he could fit in the car and take us to local movie theater. So we, I think we got up to about 12. This was pre-seatbelts. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was, you know, those days we'd go to the Bedford Playhouse and see movies for 50 cents. So. It was very much a, a part of my growing up. And then when we did move to London when I was 12, actually we moved to England when I was 12, but then we moved into London when I was 15 and I discovered uh, cinemas like the Paris Pullman and the Scala and the Electric and found a whole new type of, of movie going then. But actually when I was my teens, what I wanted to be was a genetic engineer. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and did science A-levels, and that's what I was going to university to do. But I took a year off and was working, and I actually used to present kids' TV shows, weirdly. Did you? Yeah. So Here in the UK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I did, did you present? Them. I did one called Our Show yeah. with Dexter Fletcher and oh. Elvis Payne, and I did one called The Saturday Banana Show with Bill Oddie. I mean, it's completely weird while I was doing mine science A levels so I just long story but anyway that's, that's what I did so for someone that age I sort of had a bit of money in my pocket and I, I did the Saturday Banana show and that finished this was during my year off and then I just traveled around and I went to live in Paris and worked there and went to see loads of films at, like actually on Christine and art house movies old Hollywood movies uh, continually and then I came back I worked at the ICA and the cinema there and just during that year I thought actually I think that I know about thermoregulation of the lizard and double helix structure of DNA but what I really <laughs> want to do is work in films so when I finished university, I moved to New York, and, and that's where I started. That story you told about your mum, those three painted out, you know, I can see it. Can you remember any of those films that you watched over her shoulder or the films that you went in the bug? Yeah, the one that I saw that really deeply affected me, and I only found out what it was probably about seven years later when I was 19, was Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life with uh, Juanita Moore and uh, Lana Turner. <laughs> And that film really, really affected me. And, and probably because, you know, when I was growing up in America, it was the civil rights movement and later Vietnam War protests. And both of my parents were, were very political. And um, my mother, especially through the work that, that she did, which was dealing with a lot of horrendous situations with kids living in, you know, slums just outside of New York. Mm. And so I'd had a very politicized childhood and, and race was a big part of my childhood. And so it just, it, that movie affected me in so many ways. And of course, it, it's about three women, you know, two single mothers and um, with an incredible score by the uncredited Henry Mancini. But that was a film that I really, really remember.
I spoke to you of the other films. I mean, one that I saw when I was a real kid, and it's no surprise why this one appealed either, was, believe it or not, National Velvet um, with Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with a score by Herbert Stossard, who was, uh, again, like Mancini, I mean, really important American composers. <laughs> You know, it was a story of a girl who wants to enter the Grand National, but she's a girl and can't, and so she dresses as a boy, and it suddenly revealed her true gender identity. But I think that, you know, for obvious reasons, I can't remember. I mean, it must have been about eight when I saw that film. Wow. And I thought, yes, I can. <laughs> yeah. I can Thanks, do it. Elizabeth, I can. <laughs> yeah. Do you, um, do, do you think the music resonated with you even back then? Obviously, the music, both of those films resonated. I mean, one for a small girl seeing the film, and, and clearly that score was a fantastic score. That, and, you know, that, that film still, when you look at today, gets like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, I haven't seen it for a million years. God knows what I think when I'll see it again. <laughs> but also, I mean, Imitation of Life. I mean, Cirque was just a master of melodrama, and, and the score was perfectly positioned in that film to resonate emotionally in the mm. ways that Cirque intended. And I mean, I just remember standing in the room in the doorway and I just was sort of paralyzed by extreme emotion. I just couldn't move. But I suppose one of the films that I saw, um, it came out in 1972 with Shelley Winters was um, The Poseidon Adventure. Oh my God, I love that film. And I went to see that film, I had three brothers, um, now I've got three brothers and sister, but three brothers, and went to see that film and it was just so terrifying. song came up there's got to be a morning after I think it was sort of the first time that somewhere subliminally I thought wow you can have a song where the lyrics are so blatantly and boldly and boldly addressing the film and wanting to have a feel-good moment at the end like bring people out thinking we've survived the disaster <laughs> yeah. and those lyrics what's there's got to be a morning after if we can make it through the night, night yeah um and i just loved that song which is kind of a cheesy but fabulous fabulous song i remember growing up actually my mum and dad's and i used to help in our hotel little family hotel that they had on a saturday afternoon and there'd been more than one occasion where it would be on the tv you have to sit down and watch it. It's yeah. kind of, no matter which point you come into it, you know, if it's on TV, it's like, oh God, yeah, what a great film. Yeah, yeah, no, it was just fantastic with Maureen McGovern singing it and of course a fantastic soundtrack by John Williams. So yeah, that, I, I, I really, I just loved that song. And I think if it hadn't been for that song at the end, I would have just been so traumatized by the film. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, it's gonna be all right. 
with music now in the role as producer do you get involved in that that side of it yeah I mean um so I suppose my first experience I was saying that I, I went I guess giving a bit more history I mean I went back to New York after university and the first film set that I went on to was um, the film set of a film called parting glances that was written and directed by Bill Sherwood and the film was Steve Buscemi's first film and it was made in 1984. And I was working as a proofreader for a cable TV guide magazine, which was considered the kind of lowest of the low cable TV and got paid $6 an hour. <laughs> Little did we know where cable TV was going to end up, but in those days it was like, what? <laughs> what, are these, what are these HBO? And anyway, uh, you could you you clocked in and clocked out. Um, so it was really great if you were sort of trying to figure out your career mm. and how to get on the ladder and how to start working because you could sort of come in at eight in the morning, work for a few hours. So there was a, a woman who had worked there who'd got this job as a production manager. We didn't even really know what that meant, but it was something to do with managing the money and organizing things. On this film called Pine and Glances that this guy had written and directed and he was filming most of it in his own apartment because that would be really cheap and the exterior scenes would happen right outside his apartment. It was another day in New York. Robert was moving to Africa. I want to leave because it's gotten too settled. Michael was hating him for it. Thanks for pointing that up so clearly. Shall I murder you now or later? And Nick was dying of AIDS. You know the difference between straight guys and gay guys? Uh, I forget. There isn't any. Parting glances. I don't want him to leave. <laughs> A story of sexuality. You reach puberty, you don't fucking decide which sex you like, you ask your dick. Sometimes when I'm over there, all I can think of is I'm so glad I don't have it. And saying goodbye. Do I like you? I love you. Parting glances, hailed for its superb performances by talented newcomers. I explain why I'm leaving, goddammit. I told you I'll be back. You're leaving because you don't want to be around when Nick dies. You don't want to deal with me going through that. Parting glances, when saying goodbye can be a harsh reality to face. Not fair, you've been in love a bunch. Just once, really. Now he's gone. It's right here. 
parting glances. So that was a film, first film set that I went on to. And the writer-director Bill Sherwood had been at the Juilliard School of Music as a violinist, and he was really a bit of a child prodigy. And, and then when he finished the Juilliard, he decided that what he wanted to do was be a filmmaker, and he went to um, Hunter College and studied filmmaking. And I was really fortunate to work unpaid on that film set. Initially, really like sort of chopping up carrots for the crew and, and um, you know, putting out dips that we bought from the local supermarket on Broadway. And then when Bill was editing the film in his apartment, he had a steam back and a moviola up there. He needed someone to help him. And I had been sinking rushes with um, someone I shared an apartment with, Christine Vachon, who I also made short films with and stuff. And she said, oh, well, you should, you know, speak to Elizabeth Carlson. She's been sinking rushes. So I went up to Bill's apartment. You know, he taught me how to edit. And it was the first time I'd come across a computer. It was a Mac. <laughs> first person I had an Apple Mac. And Bill was just a fantastic, fantastic guy. And he decided that he wanted to use three Bronski beats in his movie, Bronski Beat Tunes. And Parting Glances is, I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it was a really seminal film. It was a story where you start with a camera tracks down the hallway, goes into a bedroom, there's two people in bed, one of them sits up and it's a guy, the other one rolls over and it's a guy. And it was really... Uh, pretty much the first film that was about you know a gay couple living in New York the gay community that was just this is the way they are and it came out the same time as like um, Spike Lee's uh, She's Gotta Have It Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise so it was made in that milieu yeah. of independent filmmaking and it was a really incredibly radical film and for obvious reasons Bill wanted to use Bronski beat Small Town Boy <laughs> Well, it really got me that scene because Bill sadly, um, really sadly died of AIDS, my first friend who died of AIDS. So when I saw that Bronski beat track used in Robin Campillo's film, I just was in pieces and it's such an amazing film. And yeah. the way that goes from the HIV virus in the Petri dish under the microscope into the nightclub, I just was in bits thinking yeah. about Bill. And because what happened on, <laughs> he said to me, because um, I don't, 
But in those days on independent films, you didn't really have music supervisors. You just kind of muddled through. And Parting Glances went on to be a huge worldwide international success and screened at the Edinburgh Film Festival. But, you know, so there we were in post-production, you know, me and Bill in post-production as apartment. <laughs> and uh, we had a lawyer who was advising us who was a junior lawyer at a company called Frankfurt Garbus Klein and Sells, Tom Rothman, who, of course, went on to be head of Fox. But in those days, he was in his mid-20s and an early lawyer. And... Uh, he told us about music clearances and Bill and I just sat there and looked at him and he's like, you know, uh, Jim Jarmusch wanted to use a Screamin' Jay Hawkins track and he put it on Stranger Than Paradise and I saw the movie and I said, hey, Jim, do you have the rights? And Jim was like, what do you mean, do I have the rights? Oh, and he wow. told this story about having to track Screamin' Jay Hawkins down in a trailer park, I think it was somewhere in New Jersey, knocking on the door to get these rights so they could use it in, I put a spell on you, yeah. wasn't it? Put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. You're mine. So anyway, we leave Tom's office and Bill's like, well, Liz, I think you're English. You know the British people. You just need to go to London and get the rights to these three Bronski beat tracks that I want to use. And it was particularly Small Town Boy, um, which was seminal to the film. You know, and this is the days, this is like pre-mobile phones, pre-faxes. You know, it was really hard to mm. get people. You just have to try and ring some office in London and find Wait out. Come yeah, out London door. Records. <laughs> So I just looked at Bill, and he was such a great guy. And for me, it was so... I mean, you know, I was like in my early 20s, and here I was learning how to edit and hanging out with Bill, who was just a genius. And uh, so he bought me a... It's the days of Freddie Laker. He bought me a Freddie Laker round-trip ticket to go to London with instructions to go to the office of London Records and knock on the door and don't come back till I had the rights to these songs. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film. This is a script of a film. This is fantastic. Yeah, it was Love and Money, Small Town Boy, and Why. You know, tell me why. Oh, love and, it. Uh, I was like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off. But I mean, I say when I talk to young students today who want to get into film, I just say, you know what? Ignorance is your greatest asset. Don't be scared of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that I just remember it was, of course, it was raining when I got to London. It was pouring with rain. And, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, which is probably the only reason why those three tracks are on the film. And <laughs> I managed to clear the rights. Tell me why.
was my sort of first introduction of getting music for films. And back in the day, I mean, from The Crying Game to The Miracle, through to Little Voice, we didn't have a music supervisor. We didn't have a music really. supervisor for Little we, Voice. No, we did. Actually, did we have Bob Last on Little Voice? I need to go back and check the credits on that one. But a lot of those tracks were just cleared on our own. It was incredibly time-consuming. And I think when I first started working with Stephen, you know, he was like, great, you've done this before. You know, you can clear the music for these songs. And, and so we just used to get on with it and do it. Were the tracks written into the script or was it a collaboration with Jane in terms of, you know, what she was able to achieve with those songs performance voice but all of the the sort of core tracks had been written into Jim Cartwright's play Mm. so Stephen and I saw Little Voice when it was on at the National Theatre first it was at the Cottesloe yeah and then it transferred to the, um, well, now, what's it called? The Ariel Dorfman, I think. But in those days, <laughs> when it was called the, the, the National Film Theatre and not the BFI South Bank, the <laughs> National Theatre was called the... Anyway, so we saw the play, and I just thought it was just amazing and wanted to do it as a film. I mean, all of the tracks, the Judy Garland thing and, and Marlene Dietrich, you know, Falling in Love Again. Yeah. They were a part of the um, of Jim Cartwright's play, oh, and then yeah. we went to make the film. We expanded it um, to include other tracks that Mark Herman wanted to include, or Jane wanted to include. The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender, good looking, so refined. Say, wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? So let me get right to the point. I don't pop my cork for every man I see. Hey, big spender. Hey, big spender. Hey, big spender. A little time with me. You know, Jane singing somewhere over the rainbow. Oh, oh I know. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. And I mean, Wizard of Oz. I mean, you could just watch that film mm. again and again. We'll be yeah. watching that film in the year 3000. Yeah. And it will be exactly as powerful as it was when it first came out. Many, many miles east of nowhere lies the amazing land of Oz, a magnificent empire created in the mind of a man who wrote a great book about it. Like wildfire in the wheat field, the fabulous tale of the Wizard of Oz spread from town to city to nation to the entire world. Although the Wizard of Oz has captivated the children of four generations and fired the imaginations of those youthful adults who have never grown old, although 10 million copies of the book have reached eager hands and eager hearts, no one has dared the towering task of giving life and reality to the land of Oz and its people. Every delightful character of L. Frank Baum's classic is now reborn. Every glorious adventure has been recaptured and painted with a rainbow. The celebration in Munchkinland, the flying monkeys, the rescue of Dorothy, the castle of the witch, the palace of Oz and Dorothy's strange journey to the Emerald City to find the wonderful Wizard of Oz himself. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. We hear he is the Wizard of Wiz, if ever a Wiz there was. If ever, oh, ever a Wiz there was, the Wizard of Oz is one. Because, 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 because. 
because of the wonderful things he does. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. ones that you feel from me anyway I feel like I have to pass on I remember I haven't showed my five-year-old it yet it is quite dark in places oh it's know? really Especially dark. The kind of flying monkeys and stuff yeah and I always find the Wicked Witch just utterly terrifying like skin crawling yeah. terrifying. but making sure you know my ten-year-old seen it and sitting down and watching it with him and yeah. then it's almost like seeing it for the first time again because you see it through his eyes. Mm -hmm. That's such a lovely thing. No, I mean, when we first showed our three girls, you know, it, The Wizard of Oz, it was like, that was like watching it all over again. And of course, you know, it's trying to get back home. It's someone trying to get back home and trying to get a place to a love. And I mean, it's about many things. But so as a small child, it's just terrifying and the relief you find out when it's all been a nightmare as a small child and of course John Altman he was John Altman who did the score and did all the arrangements I mean it was just it was amazing that he worked on that film because he'd been brought up in big band music you know and his yeah. uncles had worked with Frank Sinatra and worked with Judy Garland and so he did the most phenomenal job on that film and it was just very cool in a way that things had come full circle because there he was working with Jane singing Judy Garland. Forget your troubles, come on get happy, you better chase all your cares away Shout hallelujah, come on get happy Get ready for the judgment day The sun is shining, come on get happy The Lord is waiting to take your hand Shout hallelujah, come on get happy, we're going to the promised land Cross the river, wash your sins away in the tide. It's all so peaceful on the other side. Hallelujah, come on, get happy. Gotta chase all your cares away. Hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready for the judgment day. And uh, the film opens with Frank Sinatra's Come Fly With Me. Christ knows how we got the rights to that. I just, I think it was still early <laughs> You day. got on a flight. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I didn't that time. I didn't, although, God, we, the night before the film came out, Sydney laughed, tried to put an injunction on the movie, I remember. Oh, God, it was, it was a nightmare trying to clear a lot of that stuff. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly. Pack up, let's fly away. Yes, the film opens with Come Fly With Me, and Jane did the most incredible version of um, Falling In Love Again, and... Jane was amazing. We pre-recorded everything because the technology wasn't really around to be able to record that stuff live mm -hmm. and she needed to sing and she needed to dance and plus Jane was singing in the voices of these yeah. great singers. I want to be kissed by you, just you and nobody else but you. I want to be kissed by you alone. Couldn't aspire to anything higher. 
to feel the desire to make you my own. Padam, 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 Burn cluster to me like moths around the flame. And if their wings burn, I know I'm not to blame. Falling in love again, never wanted to. What am I? Recorded everything at um, a studio, which isn't there now. It's been turned into flats, typically in Notting Hill. That was really an incredible experience, being in that studio and listening to her pre-record those songs. And I think that when the film came out, you know, no one believed that it was her voice. And when we released the film as part of the marketing campaign, we really wanted Jane to sing. And Jane, you know, Jane, who actually saw in the theatre last night at the Royal Court, is is really one of our great acting talents. And she is an original and she's completely authentic and she's brilliantly talented and she always goes for the edgy and she doesn't kowtow to any kind of a machine or any so she just didn't want to sing live and I think no one believed that it was her singing you know and and but she did all of that stuff but but that was a kind of really fantastic moment in my career being able to work with her on that film and then also I mean Michael Caine that's kind of like you know if you were to kind of make a, a wish a kind of movie wish that brought together, you know, a song and a, an acting talent. It's kind of like, it's, it's up there. I, I had something. Ladies and gentlemen, I had something really special. It's my room, and you're all here. And I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again, because I love you all. Golden days before they end, and they never bloody started. Bunny Morris, Bunny Star Michael Morris, fuck off you jumped up little friend. Your baby won't be near you anymore. Just as well, because they always fuck it up for you, don't they? Tender nights before they fly, oh, minus. Send falling stars that seem to cry. That's because they can't fucking hack it. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I had a dream. There's no place like home. There's no place like it's home. Over. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. It breaks your heart in two. Finish, fucking finish me. To know that she's untrue. But oh, what will you do? What will I do? Eh? What the fuck am I gonna do? Oh, my God. 
Ladies and gentlemen, with a little song about his show business career called It's Over. <clears throat> so how are you all doing, all right? He's an incredible guy. I mean, he's, he was amazing when we were filming. I mean, I was quite nervous at first when we were going to cast him because I was thinking... You know, he's supposed to be a, a, a northerner, northern, because in, in Jim Cartwright's play, he's from up north, mm -hmm. and his name came up, and I was like, well, hang on, it's kind of inspired, because the thing about casting is, you you know, you want to be outside the box, but you don't want to be so far outside the box that you move away. I mean, I always remember in Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities when they decided to cast Morgan Freeman as, as the Jewish liberal judge who was working in Harlem yeah. in Tom Wolfe's novel, and you thought they've just destroyed one of the whole points about the politics of the novel and it just didn't work but I mean Morgan Freeman's absolutely brilliant but it was just those decisions can be really tricky but I mean Michael Caine in that scene when you first see him and he's wearing that flowery dressing gown and he's standing on the chair and he's fixing the fuse box and little voice walks in I mean it's just brilliant and the two the pairing I mean I think the casting in that film with Jim Broadbent Brenda Blethyn Ewan McGregor Jane Horrocks Michael Caine we just got it right and it's just such a fun film but, yeah, he was just amazing to work with. I mean, I remember when we first started, Jane and I both had babies. I'd had my third, and she'd had her, um, her first. They were only a few months old. I mean, God knows what we were doing or how we managed it. And Michael Caine was like, looked at me and thought, what? Because, you know, he hadn't worked with young female producers, really. There weren't that many around yeah. still, and he hadn't worked with them. And I just knew that he, I mean, he's such a pro and he doesn't suffer fools. And I thought, okay, I've just got to make sure that things goes like clockwork. I've got to get his respect. It was fantastic. We had a great, great, great time making that film. And he would sit and he would tell stories and he would keep us entertained. And then they would say, right, sir, we're the first AD. would say, right, sir, we're ready for you. And literally, he would be talking right until they said action. And then, boom, he was just in character. I, I had that with Helena Bonham Carter once on set. I went to do a radio show from one of the Harry Potter films. Right. And just off set was a little kind of craft table for with biscuits and things, whatever, for them to, 
to munch away on whilst they were reset and moving things around and we were kind of stood back there just watching she came across chatting away you know kind of joking munching on a digestive and then they went okay everybody positions and I, within 10 seconds she turned into you know, this demonic character that she plays in harry potter and i was like just my, my jaw just dropped it was like yeah whoa yeah, they're all different. I mean, Jim Broadbent was like that. We worked with Jim Broadbent quite a few times. I love Jim. And uh, I remember we were shooting a film that's called When Do You Last See Your Father that Nant Tucker directed from the Blake Morrison book. And um, Jim would be doing the crossword puzzle. And he'd be standing around the corner out of view of the camera and he'd be like saying, oh, and he'd be reading out the clues to me. I mean, I'm not really very good at crossword puzzles, <laughs> but I don't know why he thought I could help him. But then again, they'd shout action and, and Jim would just go, oh, hold this. And he'd pass me the times, the telegraph, whatever one he happened to be doing. And he'd go off and do the scene. But, you know, other actors work in a completely different way. Mm. I mean, I, I had the great privilege of working with Annette Benning um, on a film called Mrs. Harris that Phyllis Nage wrote and directed. Um, she also wrote Carol and for me and I mean I've worked with some incredible actors and uh, you know I've been very fortunate with that and she she was one of them um, and she just put so much research into that role and she really needed to get in character mm -hmm. um, and it was the it was based on the true story of a, a woman called Mrs. Jean Harris who was a headmistress of one of the most prestigious girls' schools in America called the Madeira School, which was just outside Washington, D.C., where a lot of the top politicians sent their daughters. And um, she had graduated summa cum laude from Smith, and she was a single mother. And she had had a very, very long affair with a guy called Dr. Hightower, who wrote the first diet book that hit the number New York Times number one bestseller position. I mean, it was just unheard of for diet books to be number one bestsellers. And he had written it. And she had this long affair with him. And, you know, he was like sleeping with everyone, his secretary and God knows what. And he was sending her, you know, uppers and downers. Because there she was, a single mother, headmistress, two sons, trying to keep it all together. And yeah. had this lover and commuting to see him and knowing that he was treating her very badly. And she was knackered, and of course he was sending her dexedrine, and then he was sending her pills to sleep. And so eventually she drove through the night to, so she said in court, to kill herself and ended up shooting him. And it was a case, it was a 1980s, it was a case that was taken up by the media. You know, it was just a media frenzy. And you have people like Gloria Steinman writing about her and um, from the feminist perspective, and then you had a more, you know, patriarchal right-wing press who mm. was saying she was a murderess. And weirdly, I had met her when I was 12 years old. No way! Yeah, so Phyllis came in to pitch me the story. She pitched me a couple of ideas. She, Phyllis was a fantastic, fantastic writer. I mean, she really is one of the great uh, uh, playwrights and film writers. And she had done a few plays at Royal Court that I'd seen, and her agent, Jenny Casarotto, said, you know, you should meet with her. And she came in and she pitched me a couple of ideas and she pitched Mrs. Harris. And I said, you know what, when I was 12, I mean, I went to the local state school in America, but there was some three sisters who lived down the road that I was really friendly with to this day, still friendly with. And they were sent to this school called the Thomas School that was a, a private school for girls. And um, I had the day off. We had some holiday from my school. And, and my mother said, well, you know, why don't you go to school with Holly Sherwood? And, and, and that would be an experience for you because I'd never been to a school that was girls and where you wore school uniform. And I was in the changing room with Holly and this woman walked in. And I'd never really met a woman like her. You know, she was so formidable. 
And she said, who do we have here? And Holly said, oh, this is my friend. And, and she shook my hand and, and uh, walked away. And she really made such an impression on me. So it was incredible when Phyllis oh came in God. and pitched the story. And then it's got a great soundtrack, Mrs. Harris. But I'd sent Annette the script because I, I sat next to her at a BAFTA um, award ceremony. And she said, I really want to do some interesting stuff, you know, different things and female-led parts. And so when Phyllis wrote the script, which is a very particular piece, and I hired Phyllis to direct it, and I sent it to Annette and said, look, this has just come in, see mm. what you think. And I was in LA with Stephen on business and the phone went in the hotel room and she rang and said, you know, I've read the script. I think it's really interesting and, and I think I want to do it. Do you want to meet me? And ended up having dinner with her and Warren Beatty. Another one of those moments. It was like being in Rome when Ennio Morricone did the score for The Big Man. Um, being at the recording for with Michael Caine and Jane Horrocks. And all those many moments where you think, I can't believe that... I get paid to do this job <laughs> called producer. So had this dinner with Warren Annette, and Annette said, I want to do the part. So from her playing, like me meeting that character to her playing that character, and then when we needed to do all the clearances on a life right story, I actually ended up speaking to Jean Harris, who was eventually, you know, she was imprisoned for um, second-degree murder or was it involuntary manslaughter or secondary murder and then was granted um, clemency by Governor Cuomo and was released and is now in an old people's home just outside Yale University. And I had to ring and speak to her as a process of sort of factual verification of one of the things in yeah. Phyllis's script. And I think Phyllis's choice to use Put the Blame on Mame, which is taken from Gilda, Rita Hayworth, um, which is a song, you know, like so many about that notorious woman where all the ills of the world are poured upon her. And yeah. I kind of think in a way most of the films I make are about that sentiment, which is still so prevalent in our society, mm. in our world globally, where, yeah. you know, women are supposed to somehow be responsible for all of the ills, particularly mothers. When they had the earthquake in San Francisco back in 1906. They said that old mother nature was up to her old tricks. That's the story that went around, but here's the real down. Put the blame on Maine, boy. Put the blame on Maine. One night she started to shim and shake. That brought on the Frisco quake. So you can put the blame on Maine, boys. Put the blame on Maine. So having that put the blame on Maine, boys, was such a, a brilliant choice that Phyllis made to use in that film. And as well as the other one that I really love that we used, which was Minnie Ripperton's Loving You.
Phyllis did a playlist for Mrs. Harris, and uh, luckily, you know, the film was financed by HBO, so that was an incident. It's a bit like with Little Voice, where we had a sort of studio behind us, so we were able to get a pretty comprehensive um, track listing, and I didn't clear any of them. (laughs) I recently had, um, actually, I didn't recently chat to him. I recorded it way back. London Film Festival tour with Todd Haynes. Yeah. And we talked in depth about Carl and his face, you know, and as soon as you kind of, as I, as soon as I brought the film up, his kind of face sort of lit up almost mm. from the experience with that and working with Carter Burwell on the score and, and for that. Yeah, that, um, I mean, it was just a perfect storm of talent, that film. And when we were filming Mrs. Harris in LA, I said to Phyllis, what do you want to do next? And she said, I really want to do Patricia Highsmith's novel, Carol. And I was a massive Patricia Highsmith fan, but I'd read all the Ripley. Mm. Um, and obviously seen American Friend and had seen Plan Soleil, an amazing film. And I hadn't read Carol and I read it and just completely fell in love with it. And it was quite an effort to get the rights and took a long time to get those rights. So it's a case of you with that side of it, of kind of persuading the writer that you're going to look after their material basically and you're totally to, is that kind of what it boils down to yeah yeah completely i mean in the case of mrs harris the rights were elsewhere and had been i think for about 13 years and phyllis had written a draft of the script already for the person who owned the rights and so when the rights became free i contacted uh, patricia highsmith's publisher diogenes who were based in zurich where patricia highsmith ended up um, spending the final years of her life And uh, they just were like, no way. It's been tied up with an independent producer for 13 years. There's no way we're going to be selling it to you because it's, you know, Patricia Highsmith is a a big asset in their catalogue. So I just said, just let me come and have lunch with you, please. Because I thought, you know what it's like, if you just get even just a big toe in the door, just open it somehow. So I went over and had lunch with them in Zurich and um, managed to convince them to at least entertain an offer for me. And so then by this time we had, facts i think we even had email actually <laughs> no we definitely had email um so prefer now that we have this new technology or do you prefer it in the old days when you had to just go and speak to people face to face do you know i think when i was bringing up three kids and it actually just made life yeah. a lot easier because you weren't tied to being in the office i mean i was very resistant at first i think it was on little voice where it started to come in And, uh, yeah, I think for it it definitely revolutionized things. You know, there's definitely a problem that you're kind of on all the time. But, I mean, for music, it's absolutely fantastic. And I remember, like, um, Todd recorded the score with Carter Burwell in a church in Seattle, which was one of Carter's favorite places to record. And Todd filmed it on his iPhone. And the fact that you could just film it on your iPhone and send it straight over, and it's just the most beautiful beautiful, beautiful score.
you talk about women and being kind of, I mean, I'm looking at Gemma Arterton in front of me in their finest, and, and that's the thing, is like in all the films that you have worked on, yeah. in, if not all of them, most of them, Women are very much at the forefront mm. of that, and we've got you got Colette coming up yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, with a Tom um, Adder score, yeah. which is his first score that's going to blow everyone really? away. Yeah. Well, um, I, it's just it's incredible. And Chesil Beach with you know with Sasha, it's brilliant. Is that is that a conscious thing? Well, when I went onto the Parting Glances set, I went onto that set and I thought I want to be a producer. I just thought that's what I want to do. I wanted to be able to bring together creative talents and get the best out of them mm -hmm. and enable them to make stories. So I did know that. But the kinds of films you want to make, I think it was all sort of going on a bit sort of, um, it was all a bit subconscious. But when I look back now, I just think, well, it's no surprise that I started making films with Bill Sherwood. Um, who was a gay filmmaker and, and, you know, openly gay and was working with Christine and then met Stephen and Stephen and I together have always wanted and tried to make films that kind of challenge dominant structures and make films about people on the margins. And for me, yeah, I want to make films about women. And it's just also, it's just, that's what interests me. Yeah. You know, that's those stories like about Mrs. Harris, about Florence in On Chesil Beach, such a fantastic character. And, um, you know, about the writer Colette and about Carol. And those are the stories that I'm drawn to. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about Colette. Yeah, so Colette uh, is um, written by uh, Wash Westland and, and his late partner Richard Glatt, so they did Still Alice together. Oh, great <laughs> yeah, great film, and uh, Rebecca Lenkovitz. And um, it came away again. We've had a really successful relationship with Killer Films, with um, Miss Harris and Carol, two projects that we took with them that were both set in the States, and this is one they brought to us, and um, we brought Rebecca Linkovitz on to work with Wash, and stars Kira Knightley, and it's about the um, turn of last century French writer Colette, who, another, you know, woman who defied uh, expectations mm -hmm. and boundaries on every level. I mean, she was whip-smart and, um, you know, she was sort of like the godmother to Viv Albertine, really. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I love, that. I love reading. I mean, thank God for Viv in the slit, um, who I got to know at a time when I was really good friends with a group called Rip Rig and Panic, who were kind of really instrumental in my life at that time. But, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's just, it's a great film. It comes out um, this autumn, and again, Tom Ellis, who is one of the most important contemporary composers and who did the opera version, Exterminating Angel of Louis Bonnell film, um, recently at Eno in the Met in New York. He's done the score, and you know, that's another moment to be at Abbey Road Studios and oh, watch wow. Tom Ellis work. You know, he's just, he's just a genius, and it's an incredible score.
conversations about you know because it's, it's a period piece mm. it's set you know in a specific era and so there's obviously music attached to that era and yeah. the sound of that era not seen the film yet obviously but have you have you stuck to that with him or have you had conversations to allow him to kind of to play a bit more with, with well it was it was interesting in the first one of the first um scripts that that we read that Walsh had written is he wanted to use Francois Hardy and he had this idea of using contemporary tracks. And we read the the Colette estate had read the screenplay and they really questioned the songs. And we knew there was going to be some issues clearing them as well um, that our music supervisor, Karen Elliott, had identified. And then Walsh came to the creative decision that actually it was just the wrong way to go. And mm -hmm. it felt like forcing a contemporary vibe. He wanted the film to feel really contemporary. And I think, hope you'll agree, when you do see the film, and it's certainly what people said when it got the rave reviews out of Sundance, that it just feels, there's something that's got such urgency about it in yeah. the movie. And it feels very, very now. So he ended up using tracks of the period, but it was a very creatively and with music. I mean, Eric Satie was around. So it was a really, really interesting time just when things were really starting to shake up in the art world and the music world and, and the kind of time when we were moving towards postmodern and things were really being broken apart like with abstract expressionism and stuff and it was just before then. So um, I think Wash's idea to use Tom, it was his idea and Pam Koffler and I who were the lead producers did feel um, the weight of responsibility of a first-time film composer taking on what was going to be a big job because it was a period film. Wash did want to have a contemporary period sound to the movie and some of the demands were pretty big on that and 
it was an unknown, you know, and even Tom himself, you know, he hadn't done it before, but Tom has a phenomenal, phenomenal intellect, and he's one of those people that makes it seem effortless, yeah. you know, and he played the piano, I mean, he would play certain sections of score, he'd have one hand on the piano, and he'd be conducting with the other hand. Oh, my God. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of traditional score that is completely not traditional, yeah. you know, like like the movie. Yeah. Youth, yeah. the score on that, David Lang. Yeah. Who's yeah. just done, uh, which I'm really looking forward to see, Paul Dano's film Wildfire. I yeah, I, I miss that. It's, it's Sundance and yeah. Cannes, and I've heard such great things about it. Yeah, yeah and obviously youth, Paul Dano was great. Yeah. He was so great in youth. Oh, yeah, I love mean, the connection there. Do you know what I mean with yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's another I was looking at today when I was sort of looking over the films that I'd done and music in preparation for this, it was really kind of amazing to see all these connections of like mm -hmm. John Altman's uncles had worked with Judy Garland and then he came on to Little Voice and one of the great moments as well was getting to work with Big New Prizer on a film and went to Warsaw to record with him and had been a huge fan of his music from Kieslowski's Three Colors Red, Three yeah. Colors Blue. And then in the Great Beauty, Sorrentino, he used uh, as a big new Freisner recording. And then, of course, we got to work with um, Sorrentino as the UK co-producers yeah. on Youth. And so everything just seems to kind of link up, you know, all of these things yeah. come back. Amazing. Well, listen, we've run out of time, but I think it's fair to say that there, there's something about your family that we could talk forever. <laughs> so uh, please, can I come back for part two soon? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, it was Elizabeth. Total pleasure to talk to you, Edith. It always is. Thank, Thank you. you. Just your mouth. Just your love. Just your anointing oils. Just your name. Just your chambers. Just your love. And my and my own vineyard and my soul just your flock just your companions just your kids just your cheeks just your neck just your couch and my perfume and my beloved and my brain.
From the soundtrack to Youth That's Just by David Lang rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with producer Elizabeth Carlson. Isn't she fabulous? My huge thanks to Elizabeth for taking the time to talk to us. Colette is on general release around the world now. Please do go and check it out. And her back catalogue is well worth checking out too on your preferred streaming service. We'll put up a Spotify playlist for the show via edithbowman.com which is also the place to subscribe to the podcast and catch up with all of our previous episodes. Elizabeth's husband and partner in crime, Stephen Woolley, features way back on show number 35. Please do follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And do keep spreading the word on your socials if you like what you hear. Next up, talking about the final film in his trilogy, Glass, it's only M. Night Shyamalan. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.